All right, good morning. It's Resurrection Sunday. We are going to be in the Word of God today in the New Testament, so in the Old Testament a little bit too. So have your Bible ready if you want to follow along. Uh, Easter, I miss it. I mean, I don't miss Easter because I do it every year, but I do miss being at Vasquez Rocks. We haven't done that for two years now, and this this year is going to be the second year, so kind of bad, but 2022, we're going to be back over there. Look forward to that very much. I want to start off today sharing some statistical survey information. That should get your blood rushing. Now seriously, I'm not too much into statistics and things like that. I don't really follow surveys. Because you know opinion polls and surveys, it kind of all depends on the questions they ask sometimes and things like that. So I don't put a whole lot of value on them. But um, sometimes they provide some insights into the mood of the public or even what people believe if the surveys are done well. And Uh, Two religious surveys caught my attention in the last couple of weeks. They tend to do them around Easter time. Uh, Each one is really interesting, but together they're even more interesting. Every year Lifeway does a survey of what Americans believe, and they call it the state of theology. They do it twice a year. Usually it's really depressing because for some time now it really reveals that most Americans who identify as Christians, well, I don't, many of them don't believe even the most basic and essential doctrines of the faith. They really don't understand their own faith. Too many don't really know who Jesus is. A large percentage don't have a vi- biblical view of, of man or sin or salvation. And I understand why that's the case. So many churches don't teach the Bible anymore or doctrine uh, preferring entertainment. And that's kind of heartbreaking. But according to this poll, I'm going to quote now, two-thirds of American adults, 66%, say they believe the biblical accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. And that's according to the 2020 State of Theology from Lifeway Research. So one in five disagree with that. So that's 20% disagree and 14% are not sure. But 66% say the resurrection happened exactly as the Bible said. They believe that. So on the surface, that sounds great. Two-thirds of Americans believe the biblical account of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm actually quite surprised by that. Now if that number is accurate, unfortunately something is terribly wrong. Uh, It means a substantial number of Americans really have no idea what the resurrection means or what it's for. Because a second survey, this one was done by the Gallup organization, and they survey religious beliefs and practices twice a year, and they've been doing that since 1937. They report that U.S. church membership is the lowest ever since they started uh, surveying that back in 1937. And when they say church, they mean all kinds of religious organizations or institutions. It could be a synagogue or something else like that. But, um, you know, any religious organization that keeps membership roles, that it's the lowest it's been since they started taking those surveys. So when Gallup started the surveys way back in the 30s, U.S. church membership actually belonging to a congregation of some sort was 73% of the country. 73% in 1937. It stayed around 70%, pretty close to that, for six decades. And Gallup uh, tends to weigh these group results in sort of three-year increments. They do it every year, but they kind of like to group them in threes, so it sort of evens out and gives you a a, a sense. So uh, more recently, from 1998 to 2000, it was 69%, which is right up there close to that 70%. 
2008 to 2010 it was 62 percent so there was a noticeable decline 2018 to 2020 49 percent of Americans are members of some religious organization or institution or church that doesn't really surprise me um, America is following the trajectory of Europe and it has been for a long time um, I'm actually surprised it's 49 percent that actually belong to a church or some religious structure secular ideologies are becoming the substitute religion in our culture and cultural forces are, are building which are antagonistic towards Christianity at least the biblical Christianity they're um, they find Christianity abhorrent horrible terrible so there are of course churches that deny the fundamental things of Christianity that make it horrible to so many people but those churches what what's the actual reason to go to a church that doesn't believe anything so um, there are they are around but they're not well attended they're not movers and shakers they don't change the world they don't have anything really going on they're kind of dying old churches so Christianity um, is abhorred because it stands in the way of deconstructing Western civilization it's such an important part of our civilization and we're in that that sort of arc that all civilizations go through when they start on the downward trend when they stop believing every civilization gets to a point where it stops believing in the reason it was created or what it was all about that always happens and that's happened to us in the last couple decades so and it's getting worse and going faster and faster so uh, we sort of live to burn it all down now that's kind of the way things are or erase it or in modern terms cancel it cancel our civilization but it, it does surprise me that so many people still believe in the actual biblical view of the resurrection of Jesus that, that is a true story to them so I think we kind of need to think about what that means uh, I think for years certainly since I've been a Christian over 40 years that's a long time a lot of energy in evangelism and apologetics defending the faith a lot of energy has been put into building very persuasive arguments like a case for the resurrection as a historical event and that's because well many of our modern skeptics uh, reject the Bible they call it a myth or some kind of a story to give meaning to the ongoing work of Jesus or something like that in making the world better of course the first Christians didn't see it that way at all they, um, and the Bible bears witness to the resurrection as a historical event the first Christians were witnesses themselves or new witnesses so um, the resurrection is the event in the Bible in fact without it everything else falls apart but with it everything falls into place it, it's an essential belief it is the essential belief of the faith that's why every sermon in the book of Acts mentions the resurrection Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 which is the resurrection chapter in that letter of 1 Corinthians verse 14 he said if Christ has not been raised then, then our preaching is vain your faith also is vain I like that honesty in him verse 15 there he says moreover we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified that God raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished 
If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. So everything about our faith is staked to that event of the resurrection. And apparently two-thirds of Americans believe that Jesus was raised from the dead exactly the way the Bible describes it. Now that could mean that the work of the apologists focusing on the resurrection has been very successful. Or it might also mean that that really isn't where our energies needed to go. Maybe a little of both, probably so. But I think we can say this for sure. If the people who believe in the resurrection as presented in the Bible, if they embrace with full hearts the one who is risen, it would be a very different world we live in. If they did. If 60%, 66% of Americans embraced Jesus with their whole heart, knowing that he rose from the dead, it, our country would be a completely different place. So while some people do indeed need to hear the historical basis of the Christian faith which is very strong the case for it's very strong more people maybe most people need to hear what the resurrection means because most people already believe in it. They say they believe it but many either don't understand it or they reject what it means. What does the Bible say about the resurrection of Jesus? Well we've been studying the book of Acts so why don't we revisit that book a little bit uh, this morning. Look at Acts chapter 2 if you want. Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. We were there some months ago. Uh, That's the day the spirit came with power. Let's look at Peter's message starting at verse 22. Men of Israel listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. Impossible. Why was it impossible for him to be held in its power? Because he defeated death. Death is the penalty for sin and he was a righteous man, sinless. And he offered himself up for sinners like you and me to pay our debt to divine justice. And once he did that, the power of death was broken. Death was overcome. So right after that, Peter um, quote Psalm 16 I'm not going to read that whole section but but that says that God will not allow his holy one to undergo decay and David wrote that psalm and Peter says David wasn't talking about himself because he died and his tomb is still there in Jerusalem and David's been dead a thousand years but he says he spoke of the holy one and the holy one is often a name a reference to the Messiah in the Old Testament and here's what Peter says in verse 29 brothers I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. So David in the role of a prophet is receiving divine revelation and he's talking about Jesus 
So verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured forth this which you both see in here. And that's the Holy Spirit moving in the apostles. So the the two key words in there are risen and exalted. So now we're starting to see what the resurrection actually means for us. Risen verse 32 and exalted verse 33. Then Peter quotes one of Jesus' favorite psalms. Psalm 110 verse 34. It was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says the Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So David has two lords. Two The Lord God is speaking to his son, the Lord Jesus, who is at his right hand. And he bids him to sit down beside him. Why? Why sit? Because the Lord will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Now that's ancient speak for totally whomping on some enemy and conquering them and putting them under your authority. So the conqueror reigns over those who are under his feet. Messiah Jesus will reign. Verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain. That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ. He's the king and he's the Messiah. He's the ruler. He's the master. That's why we call him Lord Jesus. He has risen to reign. That's why the resurrection happened. So that he will reign upon the earth. The crucified even now is Lord of all in heaven. Sitting at the father's right hand. He's waiting. Until his father subdues his enemies. And you can read all about how that happens in the book of Revelation. This is how history as we know it. How we experience it. The current age. That's how it comes to an end. God subdues the rebellious earth and judges his enemies and then Jesus will reign over the world. The Old Testament is just full of language about that regarding the Messiah that he reigns forever. Let me just give you two. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. No end to the increase of his government. Daniel 7:14 To him the son of man was given dominion honor and a kingdom so that all the peoples nations and populations of all the languages might serve him his dominion it's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed There's many references like that. So the point is that the Messiah is the Lord of the world. The king of all peoples. That's why he's coming again. To rid the world of corruption. And to establish an eternal righteous kingdom. By his own power. God will not allow the rebellion against him. To go on and on forever. He sent Jesus to save many rebels. 
to make atonement for them and to restore them to God as sons and daughters. Hopefully that's you. That's what a Christian is. It's a restored sinner. A restored rebel through the blood of Christ. But everyone else must be crushed in a perfectly holy and just judgment and their rebellious souls cast away from the presence of God forever. That's what hell is. Jesus called hell outer darkness. That's what that's talking about. So the Lord is a savior and a judge. A savior to those who repent and bend the knee to him and a judge to those who remain in rebellion against him. That's the message of the resurrection. Jesus is the only savior and there will be a day of reckoning for every soul. When Paul preached to the pagan philosophers in Athens and I'm going to go to Acts chapter 17 now a little ahead of when we get there. That'll be months away. When he, when he preached to those pagan philosophers in Athens th- this is how he got their attention. This is um, Acts 17 verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He specifically says that. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they invite him to come and speak to their philosophy club and he launches into a very interesting evangelistic message which is really designed for pagan ears describing the true God in in terms and language that they might understand. He actually used as a launching point an altar he found in the city of Athens to an unknown God. So he says you don't know this God I'm going to tell you all about him. He's the real one. So he tells them about the true God and then he says Verse 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul points to the resurrection as the proof of this claim that God has appointed Jesus to judge the world. So he really doesn't even get to talk about Jesus as the savior. Um, At least it's not recorded that he did that. I think he was going there. I'm sure he was but apparently he seems to have gotten interrupted by the reaction from everybody to the resurrection idea. So he doesn't quite get to explain all that. But some people do believe and they start to follow and hear more about Christ. So people definitely need to hear about the cross but Paul doesn't start there with this group. He, he, he doesn't he knows that people won't seek a savior unless they know they need one. So he's talking about what God commands of all people that they should repent and turn to him. So that was foundational then in the first century when Paul preached it and it is foundational now. But fewer and fewer Americans understand this. Fewer and fewer are raised to understand it for one thing and fewer and fewer attend 
Bible preaching churches where they will learn that. God is holy. He is pure goodness. So sinners need to repent in order to be right with him. God will judge the world through a man whom he has appointed. And who is that man? That's Jesus. How do we know that? You can say that God's going to do that Paul but how do we know? God raised that man from the dead. That's how we know. That doesn't happen where people raised from the dead. It's like a big marker there that this is what God is doing. That's the man that God has chosen. The one that rose from the dead. Now the, the centrality of the resurrection is why Christian thinkers and theologians and defenders of the faith spend a lot of time defending the resurrection as a historical fact. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 if there's no resurrection your faith is worthless. We read that earlier. And you're still in your sins. So if there's no resurrection there's no salvation for us. If he was not raised. You know there's a lot to say about Jesus. He's the most compelling human being that ever lived. And yes the gospel story that he God in human flesh He became man out of this incredible love that God has for us and he took upon himself the punishment that our sins deserved. That is the greatest story ever told. No human mind has ever pondered anything more wonderful than that a holy God would redeem sinful man at the cost of great suffering himself. That, that idea has never been in the human mind until Jesus came and did that for us. It's the greatest story ever told. He literally shouldered our crimes on himself. You know for me the person of Jesus and that story make the whole thing more than enough for me to give my life to him. Uh, What can compare with that? What in the world can compare with him and what he did? But all of that is nothing without the resurrection. That's why it's at the center. It's absolutely critical. So here in Acts 17 we we saw the resurrection is is deeply tied to Jesus as a judge. As the Lord. He is Lord. One other place I want to show you. Romans chapter 1. It's just right after Acts there. In Paul's letter to the Romans which is his masterpiece on the subject of salvation. That's what the whole letter is really about. Listen to just how it begins. These are the very first verses he's writing to the Christians in Rome. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness. Christ Jesus. Our Lord. So the resurrection. Declares. Jesus to be the son of God. Paul calls him. Christ Jesus our Lord. And here is we. Here's where we find. This disconnect between the two surveys. I talked about at the beginning here. Large numbers of Americans. Believe in the resurrection. Just as it appears in the Bible. They believe it exactly the way the Bible says it. But many of them have no commitment to Jesus as Lord. 
That's a huge problem. Oh, yeah, I believe that. I was raised with that. Yeah, I believe that. I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. They believe he's risen, but they ignore his authority as Lord. They don't care about what he cares about. They don't follow him. If somebody says, I believe that, you should say, how does that affect your life? Because many people will say, well, it doesn't really affect my life. Listen, the most basic way that we humble ourselves before Christ as Lord is to align ourselves. When I say align ourselves, I mean the things we care about, the things we love and the things we hate to align ourselves with him, with the things he loves and the things he hates. You know, I would never tell someone they have to be part of a church to be saved. But I will always tell everyone that following Jesus means cultivating our loves to match his loves. So we should love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. I mean, that just makes sense, right? As a Christian matures and grows and learns the word of God and lets the word of God richly dwell within him or her, He loves the things that God loves and he hates the things that God hates. He turns away from everything that God declares to be sinful and he embraces those things that God declares to be good and holy and righteous and lovely. Our priorities begin to become God's priorities. We start to live for him. We live for him. He's not an add-on. He's the center of our hearts. And that relates to the church membership survey. Did you know that Jesus loves the church? It was his idea. In fact, in Acts 20, 28, Paul says he purchased the church with his blood. He died for the church. The church is his body. He's the head of that body. There's not only an intimate connection between the head and the body, but the body obviously is supposed to follow the direction of the head, right? I mean, that's why that analogy is used of the church and Christ as the head of the church. How would you feel if your fingers and your toes decided to, they're just not going to be a part of your body anymore. They're just going to take off an arm, a leg, a couple of ears, just walk off. They sit out. They sit out your life. Actually, my ears are sitting out my life pretty regularly these days. Oh, I'm not a member of this body. I, I just come around when I feel like it. I, I don't have to serve this head, follow his orders. Something in the attitude of that body part that says that isn't right. Doesn't make any sense at all. The church is a community of the redeemed. It's bought with the blood of Jesus. And every member is gifted by the Holy Spirit. Specifically, the Bible says, for the common good so there's no common without community the church is the redeemed community so we do have a common world together in Christ and we are to serve each other you can use your gifts somewhere else but they were designed and purposed by the Lord the king for the church that's why he gave gifts to people every Christian has to weigh their responsibility to lovingly and joyfully use their gifts for others in the body of Christ, to serve them in some way. I've watched people 
doing that here in our church for 30 years and more. And it never ceases to amaze me how wisely God uses all of our differences and different gifts and strengths and talents to make a greater whole. Just like our bodies with all of our diverse parts and systems in our body, they work together to make us these marvelous creatures. So I see it in our church, uh, a living illustration of this really important principle. Every Christian has to take seriously and biblically the role the church should have in his or her life. Not because of pressure from people or somebody's expectations of you, but just from a love to God, to Christ as your King and Lord and Savior. And those are his people. And he wants you to be in community with them. That's what the Lord requires. That's what the Lord expects of us. Serving people really shouldn't be a pain or a burden. Now, there are certainly burdens to be borne and we do bear one another's burdens and sometimes there are very painful situations but all service to others because human beings are sinful it's going to involve pain and frustration sometimes but service using our gifts is an opportunity to lift and heal and strengthen other members of the body. If we have a a weak member of our body if something isn't working our whole body is sending cells and all kinds of things there to fix it. it it rushes to try to make that right and that's the way we're supposed to be that can be as simple as encouraging someone doesn't have to be something spectacular showing an interest meeting a need praying with someone that can only happen when you're present and in a community now you can pray for people if you can't be with the church right now. You can be praying for people and contacting people and seeing how they are and using your gift right from where you are and that's perfectly fine. But the norm is to be gathered together, worshiping together, encouraging one another. We don't just come here and do our thing and go home. We're here for each other. That's the whole idea. Jesus loved to please the Father. Jesus is Lord. So we should do that too. Jesus loved the Bible. It filled his mind and his thinking and his language. Jesus is Lord. So we should love the word of God in the same way that he did. Jesus loves the church. He is Lord. More intimately he is actually the head of the church. So we should love that too. The message of Easter is not just that Jesus conquered death. But that he is the king our risen Lord and that we should honor him as the king every way that we can to love what he loves and hate what he hates and move in a direction that would be pleasing to him because he's our king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus you are the Lord exalted reigning and coming again. May we be about your business because you are a good and gracious king. On this resurrection day we confess you as our king and our sovereign and may you be exalted on earth as you are in heaven. May you be exalted in our hearts so that we may please you. This we pray in your holy name. Amen. All right. We'll be back in the book of Acts next Sunday.